Hi, Mark. Uh, welcome back. The last time we was in the episode 38, 38 about uh, with the title Apache Firefighter. And uh, back then, uh, we wanted to talk about microservices because you love them. And you say, okay, let's talk about them because uh, any reasonable application have should have as many microservices as possible. This was my understanding back then, right? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the point is... Um, People are most of the times not aware of the trade-offs and they kind of, yeah, the, the old saying with the hammer and uh, the nails from, uh, from Paul Watzlawick, I think, from the philosopher. Um, if you, if you have a hammer, every problem seems to be a nail and it's kind of a discussion. I, I give a, actually, I give a, a, a university lecture about it since many years about, uh, hype-driven development. Oh, and okay. the, the topic, um, morphed a little bit from, no SQL to uh, cloud and uh, um, big data. And uh, in the in the last four or five years, it was about uh, microservices. And when I gave this talk the first time, also at conferences, um, four or five years ago, people really had funny looks <laughs> because, oh, hey, what is he talking about? Everybody's raving about microservices. Why is this guy trash talking? And the point is I'm not trash talking microservices and I, I find them really, really good for a few certain problems or scenarios, but it's not kind of the, the silver bullet for every business problem, especially for in-house projects. And people are most of the time just, they, they read the topic uh, in, in computer magazines or hear about it uh, on conferences and then they, they use it and go all bonkers. And some technicians start with it uh, because it fits for their project really well. And then they spread it or kind of, yeah, they, they are they're doing this with their heart because it really fits really, really well within their project. Like, for example, Netflix, where um, microservices is really, a really, really well fit. And people see this and say, oh, well, I love this. This should work for my project as well. I I need to try this out. And the, the truth is that often the scenarios are really a lot different um, than with kind of Netflix style applications. So the, uh, of... the scary part here is uh, what we are talking right now. Uh, this is what I also did on my recent talks. So I already mentioned, you know, Netflix was already on my slides. And I'm actually absolutely with you. And that's interesting because we never had a chance to talk directly at conferences or just say said hello and and um and for me um the first thing so let's how microservices started so if um i i uh, i i uh, when was it i think 6 7 years ago i started to see mm -hmm. you know the term microservices and then as i and then i tried to look it up and the people already had to d discuss what is a microservice and what i remember is there was discussion how many lines of code a microservice should have. And I say, okay, this is this is absolutely stupid. I mean, because, you know, what does it mean? So if I have you no know, 50 lines of code, I'm in microservice area, and 51, I'm already um, somewhere else. And the, the whole discussion was never about at the beginning. It was more like, you know, we we write a small microservices, and they communicate you know, via the, the Unix or Linux pipe with each other. And this was the idea. And I said, and I said, this, this would, I, I couldn't even imagine this would never fly in my projects. I, I and uh, 
and, and the, the whole discussion was not about you know added value for for the application, more like you know uh, there is a new term microservices, and uh, already what you already said, and let's now just use it somehow. So this was my perception at the very beginning. Remember this? Yeah. The, the, yeah. There, there is a huge added value. There are two or three added value because we people didn't do this out of the blue. They did this because their old applications kind of monoliths they kind of developed for 15 years or so and they grow for 15 years are barely maintainable right now but the point is that often this is not because of being a monolith it's just because being 15 years in maintenance and people adding things here and there and the original people are not available anymore for a long time and so this went through uh, hundreds of, of hands without understanding the full complexity. And this is most what makes monoliths so badly maintainable. They just grew over the years. And uh, if you would do a monolith from scratch and, for example, use Apache Maven uh, to have an I know I'm not, you're not a big fan of interfaces, but <laughs> for this scenario, it's really cool if you have an API module and the backend. So you split up your application in business parts, like you would do for microservices. And then each of these business parts has an API, a, a backend, and for example, a frontend um, chars. And then uh, you only depend, have a compiled scope dependency on the APIs, on the interfaces and DTOs. And all these backend modules are just runtime dependencies. And with this trick, you can really well structure a monolith as well on the comp at compile time at at um, at runtime. Of course, it will be a monolith and also at deploy time. But um, it's it's really much more maintainable, um, and you get similar effects than you you get with microservices. But um, you also have to to take care because if you have all in the same source code, then then people kind of hand over to the other module where they actually are not responsible for and, and change some code there as well. So it, it needs kind of some, yeah, some, people have to understand as well what they're doing, but you don't have the network boundary, which gives you a few benefits in the performance and also in the transaction uh, mechanism. But people didn't do monoliths just... They had a real pain. And the real pain was... Um, modularization, which of course could do, as I already explained. And the second thing was uh, that it's it's just too, sometimes too big. If you have a huge company and you have 100 developers, it's really hard to do this all in one source code. Okay. And then, of course, you need to split. Let's talk about modularization. So what I see in projects is uh, sometimes what you exactly said. So, um, so, so funny story outside. Uh, I, I had to review... Uh, microservices or or not microservices mm -hmm. it was like uh, war projects which supposed to be somehow modular and uh my clients asked me no uh, how how long how how long how much time do you need it's like okay okay two weeks so i, I will manage to complete perform the whole review and i got the the two wars and what i found out that that uh, inside the two wars were in total 120 uh, maven jar modules <laughs> and they okay. were they were actually uh, structured as you said so from from the you know 
mm-hmm. f- from the uh, crafting level or from the uh, developer knowledge level, they were perfect. So it means there were modules, Maven modules, just with API level interfaces, and there were implementation Maven modules, and uh, there there were you uh, so like you know uh, service providers and service consumers. So this was more like you mm-hmm. know textbook yes. project. It was perfect, but yeah, modules. Yeah, that was a term I I, I recently read. But uh, it was not maintainable. Everyone hated that, and I needed four weeks for the review, not two weeks, because I actually always forgot what I actually saw. And um, and uh, I had a killer argument against the architect why the architecture was wrong. Can you think of so how how to tell the architect that the whole thing is useless? Ha. Very easy, actually. What I did, I took a look at the versions of all the modules, and they had always the same version. Oh, that's that's because they are build time one project, and yeah. I I understand this because it perfectly fits together. It's all also a trade off. If you build all at the same time, then you have the benefit of being able to say, oh, the customer topic or the the customer domain is in this module and nothing else touches the core customer update domain. Um, they can read from it via the APIs, but they should only change the customer itself in this module. And there is the billing domain, which is in another module and so on. So you have clear dependencies and people, different teams can work on this. Yeah, but different. Uh, they never but had to know. Ra- if, if you build it at, in one big fat Maven project, exactly, then you are you are guaranteed that it all fits together perfectly well. Yeah, but they always had this inversion, so it means they never had the case in the whole history of the projects where they released, you know, the customer independently from the other module. That's, I think that's fine. Uh, for me, it was, and you know. But, uh, but the, the, po- the w- point is you, you, are, you are 100% sure that you have no dead code because you can analyze it with standard tools. You compile it and you're 100% sure that all the APIs fit together uh, and so on. So it, it, it's not always, in my opinion, required to... It's the next level of... Kind of you have different areas. You can say kind of you, you, tweak, you, you split the domains in different models. Then you can say... Oh, you make this reusable and split this into own Maven project with their own version lifecycle and release lifecycle. But that's the next step already. If they say the customer is really that stable, they don't touch it for months and so on. But once they touch it, they have to kind of upgrade all the downstream projects. And you, the same is with microservices. And of course, you can try to keep the, the versions or the APIs compatible, but actually that's in big projects, that's always some pain point because you need this to test this in a staging area. And uh, most of the time you, you only get the failures at, at runtime then. If you figure that something is not that compatible anymore. Uh, so you kind of, it's just like moving to JavaScript kind of thing. Yeah, so but you, you what... leave the area of static compile checking and go more to the runtime. Exactly. Uh, failure handling but again what they did everything was built at once so all, all the 120 modules were never built you know for itself they always built the whole thing 
I, I've, uh, this is depending what you need. This is a valid approach in my eyes. Okay, the next, uh, the, the, then the, the next time level is okay. not an so, hour. So, so you would be harder to convince than the architects. So I see already. <laughs> but <laughs> the next level was <laughs> all interfaces had exactly one implementation, and there was well, never, never two. Uh, it's also from. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it depends from the sanity. No, the point is that you kind of have the contract. The the I'm coming from C as here. Yeah, I yeah, know, I, I as, as well. But it's so interesting discussion. I'm, you had the head of files, and you have the contract. Exactly. And also, I don't have any Java docs except in the APIs, or not any. Yeah. I, I have Java docs if the, I do some some really tricky technical or or domain trick where the business logic is not that intuitive and uh, you know you could write the method with 130 characters to explain what it does or you just write a, a, a smallest java doc yeah <laughs> so but usually the implementation does not have that much java doc but the apis they have and all my unit tests for example they test solely against the uh the apis okay and then not I have the implementation. To, 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 to ask you, what are you actually building? As a client projects or server services and technical stuff? Well, what are you talking about? Uh, most of my projects are business projects, okay. which are used internally. So, uh, so Hopefully, it, 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 we won't meet in a project. This would be fine, you know, for <laughs> forever. You will write the interfaces, I will delete the interfaces, and uh, yeah, <laughs> but no, it's fun to no, talk the, about the it. Point, okay. The point is, I see the interfaces as a contract. And they are well defined. I think I, I, my unit tests, I start, I do the unit tests interface first. So it's, it's not exactly test driven development in a, in a, in a pure way, but it's close to test driven development. So I think about how would I, I model the, this, this domain? How should it be used? Then I, I, I write uh, a few unit test bodies where I have the use cases and I start just writing unimplemented interface methods, how it should feel, how would I love to kind of uh, see the API, how should it behave, what state do I need, what data objects do I need, and I, I play with this. There is no single line of implementation for it yet. I just play around how the API feels. Mm -hmm. And this is the, the the interfaces, just the interfaces, no implementation. This is interesting. What what I do, and, I and do... then I fill it with Flash and and, and Meet. Yeah, I, but uh, what's interesting in our conversation, I I am exactly the opposite. So, and I think we <laughs> this could also work. So, um, what uh, in my projects, actually, in the recent years, I, I don't remember. I wrote an interface, probably you know, yeah. Sometimes with Java eight interfaces with uh, static methods, so like utility, something like this, but not as a contract. And uh, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm just talking exclusively about Java E and microprofile projects. Uh, the approach would be completely mm -hmm. different in Java SE. So in Java SE, I'm with you. I'm talking about Java E, and what I'm try to use as much as possible is the conventions from Java E and uh, CDI. Let's talk EJB or CDI mm -hmm. for me is the same almost. Yes. And uh, for me, the contract are public methods. So uh, I do exactly what you're doing. I'm starting with a POJO without an interface and public methods matter to me. And Javadoc is on the public methods. And private methods or package, private, I um, do not allow private actually. I have package private or public. Yeah. This is this. And with the package private are private actually. And why they are package private? Because it's easier to test without any tricks. So, and from that, I don't also have DTOs at first. 
So um, I'm uh, I I can expose uh, or I allow or actually I promote the expo- direct exposure of uh, if if we have JPA let's say JPA entities with le- let's say JSON B and I write system tests. So for me the unit tests are just you know for productivity and the black box tests or system tests are the most important thing in microservice like architectures. So and from there if I find that for, let's say that the contract of the POJO is too weak because uh, we, we would like to encapsulate algorithm or whatever, then afterwards I introduce the interface with a proper name. And if I find that, let's say, the annotations and uh, are uh, on JSONB are not good enough to transfer different view as the database provides, then I introduce the DTO. So what might happen is that we both end up in the exactly the same code but after a few iterations. But you will start, you know, with the optimum and I'm starting with the minimum. And uh, and 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 why? I don't know how you are working, but I have the I always have to, to work, you know, with people who I don't know. They come, you know, from different companies and everyone try to show off what what you know what is the recent uh, architecture. And um Introducing interfaces, factories, and patterns is is very easy in my project. So if I will tell, let's build, you know, five layers, everyone would be happy. But uh, then it ends up, you know, in a cargo cult where everyone builds pattern whatever they can, and they forgot about the business logic. So I think the only chance I have to build build something reasonable to build as simple code as possible. So this is why I find it interesting that we both probably end up having the same code, but the approach is completely different. I think we have to, I, I now opened an editor and I will kind of like I do at, if I'm at conferences or at political discussions or whatever, I kind of um, always have pen and paper with me to, um, but you was too fast kind of bit. So I, I agree with you that we pro- probably both aim for this for the same end result. Uh, and I, uh, there's another point where I completely agree with you that pure unit tests are more or less rather they don't make that much sense and i also try to do to avoid heavy mocking because uh, you end up testing your mocks and not your real code and so that what do you what you name business uh tests or you what have you coined it business tests uh, system tests. Uh, system system tests, yeah, kind of, yeah. It's, it's kind of a slow integration test with, I do pretty much the same with, I start a container. I, for mo- there, there are pure unit tests, but a pure unit test. How you start the, con- how you start the container? Code. How you start the container? Uh, with, with Delta Spike CDI control. Okay. This is the it, next difference. Delta Spike, Archelian, and whatever are forbidden yeah. in my project. Yeah, yeah okay, that, that's. But uh, why? Ah, uh, why? Te- uh, yeah, exactly. Because what? Okay, that's uh, and um, so and between each each test, I just kind of kill the, um, the the scopes. So every session scope, request scope, and so on is kind of uh, flushed. So mm-hmm. there is no contextual instance uh, over between the tests. It just takes nanoseconds, mm-hmm. and then the, the 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 container starts only once, and then you kind of run through all the unit tests and just kind of uh, uh, flush the, the brain of the CDI container in the sense of the context. Um, everything else is there. And I mock the 
the outgoing. So if you leave the system, all those things are kind of mocked with CDI mocks. Um, and all the rest is kind of using the business logic against, for example, H2 database. So I really test with the, the database layer in business projects. There's a huge difference if I do uh, tool projects like Delta Spike itself, or like, you know, I've, I've written kind of the Java E container inside core things. And there it's completely different because you need different scenarios. For business tests, I most of the time have exactly one scenario, which is my standard business scenario. And there I have a few hundred business uh, cases mm -hmm. and or a thousand business cases and they need to run with exactly this one setup so boot the container once for my module run all the unit tests um, so i only have the container overhead 300 milliseconds or so once and between the unit tests it takes no time because it's just kind of clearing a map okay. that's it. it there is no performance hit once the container is started and it gives you the benefit that you really test the whole thing down to the database. Yeah. Um, and the most of the problems actually are in the database layer. And JPA does a wonderful job to abstract away different databases. But if most errors in, in my experience is from database handling level. Interesting. Complete different approach, probably similar results. So let's uh, let's take that. Mm -hmm. I, I would I would love to go back to the question about we, we started or we scratched this question: How big should a microservice be? And I would kind of claim that uh, microservice is a name, but actually the it's it's about modernization on a code level. And we have been there with SOA. We have been here with there with remote HEPs where. Genie. Actually, the yeah, for example, yeah, it's all the same. It's about you have a computational problem and you want to split it out to okay. a different uh, isolated box or remoting. Your your and discussion question... your discussion with um your discuss the discussion with you about modules is even more interesting than microservices. So then that I would just would like to hear your opinion I, I, about that. Microservice is just a name. Yeah. My, my, I, of course, I, I but the approach is completely different. So, for instance, why I forbid Delta Spike mm -hmm. uh, CDI unit on Arcelion, yeah. and the reason for that is, again, I also I work with uh, mm -hmm. developers who try, you know, to to. So, whatever you said is reasonable if you are working with experts, and I, I think you are working with, you uh, know, in small team, and then it might work in my projects. For instance, most of the tests are written because mm -hmm. uh, the developers need metrics. And they would do whatever they can, you know, to have a high code coverage, regardless whether the tests are reasonable or not. So therefore, uh, pff, okay, no, that's, really, that's no kidding. Point. This is eighty yeah. percent of of big business projects operate exactly the, the way. The first question I know is code coverage because they need Sonar in <laughs> Sonar Cube in in default settings, yeah. and they they need you know the matrix. But what I wanted to say is, um, for instance, database tests I do completely different. For instance. Uh, I have the JPA entities, and I boot with uh, Persistence Create Entity Manager uh, factory and pass the mm -hmm. uh, the uh, the Persistence unit. Then the next line is Entity Create Entity Manager, and I have the Entity Manager, yeah. and I uh, I uh, look at the application server, and I use exactly the same SPI. So let's say Eclipse Link or Hibernate version, what the uh, or OpenJPA mm -hmm. version, what the server is using, and then I iterate very quickly because I can test all the named queries up front. And now something mm -hmm. happens interesting. 
Now what I'm doing there, so I'm writing the name query first. I put it in annotation on the entity. And sometimes from there, you know, I write the method in a unit test, the query methods, and then I copy the methods to a controller class or service class, and it becomes my POJO. You know what I mean? So yeah. I write a test first and then almost test driven. I don't like the term. That, but... that works for the first iteration, but how about maintenance? If yeah, you yeah, now. get an so, additional field, then... So the next, the next thing is... Um, then, um, then, for instance, most of my clients have, for instance, um, OpenShift or Docker. So I, I, mm-hmm. bare metal is almost no more existent, I have to say. Uh, uh, yeah, the last years was Docker or, or OpenShift so, or Kubernetes. Uh, so in uh, Docker case, um, what will happen is we have a continuous integration pipeline. And uh, I would force the developers to push as often as possible and then we will run through system tests. It means what you are doing in CDI, we would do in production near environment. This would be my requirement. Mm-hmm. And in OpenShift, I will prohibit use Docker Compose or Docker locally because what I saw several times is that uh, you know developers build their own environment locally and never actually de- deploy to Kubernetes and it actually never runs. And why I would like to achieve with that, you know, with the system test, we are forced, you know, to test not only the Java part, but also, you know, the readiness, liveness probes and the whole thing all together. And uh, because if we would do what we are doing with CDI in my projects, no one will, you know, push to the CI anymore. They would just play with uh, with the CDI unit or Delta Spike or Achillean. And for me, is if you if we don't have time, the most valuable test is production-like tests, and therefore. I, I go with that. So in one project, and uh, different scenario, I was once hired by Vardin to extend, to integrate with um, Java E6 back then. It was a long time ago. And I had to introduce my own CDI scope. I think it was like tab scope or view scope. UI scope. UI scope or something like this. And um, it is really hard to test that. So what I did, I used back then Archillion. And everyone, everything was Archelian tested because the whole point of the project was implementation of scoped and dependency injection. So for this was something like, you know, Delta Spike or Archelian was golden because it was the whole point of, of that. So this was yeah. just, you know, uh, what, what we are doing. And this works well. And um, at least uh, everyone, you know, spends a lot of time in integration environment and uh, and not an own machine and locally we use uh, uh let's say an ide with a plugin which automatically deploys to the server so you you now have kind of three or four different things which i kind of wrote down here the first is docker kubernetes versus bare metal uh, bare metal um and in many of my project it boils down to what people need and and uh, what what we do usually is to kubernetes comes with a lot of overhead yeah and uh, f- there are two different projects in my opinion projects which need scaling and projects which don't need scaling and the projects who need scaling is really a well fit for cloud and cube and and things like that which the whole thing the whole the whole point is about being able to scale also for Netflix. Um, the, the, the example I give in my talks is on, on this uh, Christmas Eve, you have uh, 1000 times the traffic on Netflix, like on a Saturday morning or, the, or a Tuesday morning under the year. 
so they kind of can scale up dynamically and then after they don't need it anymore, they kind of shut them down. And for them, Amazon and so on makes sense. But if you're like an insurance company or a pension fund where the, the people come to the office at seven in the morning on Monday and at five o'clock in the afternoon, they all leave the office and this goes Monday to Friday, 52 we uh, weeks a year. Um, and you have the, the requests are the same over the day. Uh, then there is no kind of need for scaling. And what we do is to use something in between. We most of the time for those projects, we use uh, KVM. Uh, so Linux kernel virtualized machines, uh, which is way faster, 40% faster than uh, Docker or Kubernetes. No abstraction layer. You have kind of almost the bare metal speed. But if something goes bonkers, you just uh, kind of duplicate the KVM and you can uh, upscale a node uh, on the fly or move to another box on the fly because it's kind of the, the, the KVM is on some NAS um, and you can kind of take it over to a different machine. So you, it's, it's not as dynamic as Docker, but it's good enough for production if you have a stable uh, uh, load. Mm -hmm. So this is, and, and you have much better performance. I'm completely with you. And much more maintainability. I'm completely the, with the you. The only thing you need to take care of is that the administrators don't do kind of manual tweaking because <laughs> then, then it's it's kind of nasty thing. So you have yeah. to kind of have some, some chef or puppet or uh, like they check in um, their config into Git or, or Subversion or something like that. And you have to, to train them a little bit. The second point was about production tests and um, the downside with this approach is that you always have a, a, a staging area and you never know if your test fails because your thing is broken or some colleague trying to just have tried something out as well and broke your, your integration test. So you have always, it's randomly broken. And if things are randomly broken, people start to not taking care anymore because, well, it, it won't be me. My, my thing will be fine. It's someone other broke the, the staging environment. So I try to do a little bit more on the kind of local integration side testing, uh, but by the under, totally understand your notion. And um, the, the truth is somewhere in the middle, I guess. So like many developers, uh, the, one of the projects I'm currently working for has 138 developers and they are split in smallish teams where there is at least one person who really knows what he is doing or rather pretty much knows what he's doing. There is a group of a platform team, which is uh, kind of on my level. Uh, so they are really, really okay. Uh, and then you have a few kind of the people who make the work. <laughs> so they, they are good business developers. They understand what they're doing, but they are no experts. And then you have two kind of juniors. Um, so the teams are kind of mixed. And with that, you can kind of work pretty well also in a, in a rather bigish project, but I, uh, it's, it's probably that way because we trained him for many years and it, it, in the beginning, it was probably more like you, that the main difference between your projects is that you get kind of hired for being an, a kind of a spike solution and kind of come to the customer for a month or so and help them and kind of try to get rid of the, the most ugly parts. And I usually kind of be with a customer for many years, once a week, twice a week, 
uh, and kind of uh, guide them over a really long term uh, time. Exactly. So this is what I wanted to say. So sometimes, you know, I have no influence. So the Kubernetes or OpenShift mm -hmm. is already there. So I oh, yeah. okay. remember in uh, only mm -hmm. in two cases I advise you know to to introduce OpenShift or a Docker in all other project it was already there. So and so it, it it sometimes makes a lot of sense because especially if you're kind of into you're trying out a new business and you don't have a clue how much load you will get if this takes off or you say oh scrap it I don't even buy an own box for it. No, so uh, this is it, not about load. Make sense. In most cases, it's not about load. It's about, uh, how to call it, like uh, sysadmin productivity or maintainability. Because if you just would run Docker containers, you will have you know, to introduce your Docker, Docker networking and care about the port conflicts and whatever. And Kubernetes oh, yeah, sure. mm -hmm. automates that. So uh, yeah. um, uh, I see, I hear at conferences, you know, lots of uh, talks about scalability. And this is really boring topic because... I think in most cases, database or I always the problem and not our containers. <laughs> so in, the, in business processing. Yeah. So in, this means uh, we, we actually we never scaled because the application servers are fast enough. But with Kubernetes, what you really can, or OpenShift, what we, for instance, do, one command and you have your Jenkins with pipeline. Another command and you get, you know, the route, everything is set up. So it's extremely productive to, to get new environments. And what you said with KVM, I would even go a step further. So I think the most optimal solution would be a small bare metal boxes with fat jars on them. And this would be the optimum, you know, that you have a small inexpensive uh, pods of, of hardware and then uh, and do it this way. And KVM is like the expert level. But KVM is not as known as, you know, as Kubernetes or OpenShift. So my clients wouldn't mm. get the answers on Stack Overflow. So, I mean, this is the... Well, it's the whole, the whole Red Hat virtualization engine is based on KVM. So kind of you have already KVM uh, if you're starting Red Hat virtualization. Yeah, I use this on my server. The cool story with KVM is this. They also have the COV, yeah. this copy and write uh, file system, which is very similar to Docker. So there's, mm -hmm. uh, there are books on everything, but it's not as popular. So for me would be a yeah. lot harder to introduce than let's say OpenShift, Docker, or Kubernetes, you know. This is and mm -hmm. yeah. And but you are we're right, Kubernetes is a complex beast and uh it is uh, you you've worked probably with Kubernetes already. So it is like absolutely if you start with it to say, okay, this is like, you know, what is it? I have to send, you know, YAML files back and forth. It uh, and uh it's completely different to anything else. So but um Interesting part. So, um, and you are also absolutely right. You stick in a project longer, and I in several projects sometimes you know view days and try to fix something on, or I try you know proof of concepts or strategic consultant whatever they ask me you know what is the future of this what we can do proof of concept or something like this. This is what I'm doing, and uh, yeah. So what is your most pressing problems you see at customers? Because I have an answer for this already, but I want to hear yours first. <laughs> uh, Over-engineering. This is why, okay, yeah. mm -hmm. why I d don't like to hear your solutions with the interfaces, because if I would propose that, it would explode. You know? Well, I, I, only, um, I only suggest this if, if I know the business is huge. Yeah. And then for smallish problems, isolated problems, it's complete over-engineering. But if you see kind of old COBOL applications like of big banks and so they want to move from one to other, then they 
um, then it's it's often a really good fit. And this comes to my number one problem I see uh, is uh, that people always just care about the sunshine case. People don't think for failures. People engineer code for the golden, the green path, like the, the optimum path for their business without any error handling, without exactly. any exceptional cases. And uh, they, they don't think about what could go wrong and everything which could go wrong if it's in a in a in a one to a billion one to a billion uh, chance sounds like incredibly low but uh if you know that i mean we we have boxes which run four billion instructions per second per core with uh, 64 cores <laughs> so um so the chance that an error happens is about 200 errors per second if you calculate this down. <laughs> so it's it's the, the numbers seem to be that low, but errors happen in IT every second. So and people don't code for it, and this is also one of the huge problems I see with microservice installations because they people are so used. to 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 what we kind of got with with SQL, uh, Ted caught uh, in in 1970s and and uh, transactions and people curse about AGB and Java Enterprise, uh, but the the good thing with all those technologies like transactional in CDI and and AGB is that you have the 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 proxies and you have an automated transaction handling and people kind of not even think about it. But they they give they they kind of assume this is granted that the outermost level kind of opens the transaction and if something goes bonkers and an exception blows up there will be a rollback and then your your state is kind of your database is kind of protected by this. Okay, so the, the now concretely by overengineering, I just give you an example and then to mm -hmm. to uh, to transactions. So a typical project. Uh, looks like this so for me i think this is what happens is they start with jpa and they create a java class and uh, then the ide generates getters and setters then they have lots of getters and setters they are not needed but they are already there they look at the getters and setters like this is ugly java what we can do so and they they found find lombok so then they add an annotation getter and setter in lombok now lombok generates um, gazillions of getters and setters then they, uh, uh, Sonar Cube says, okay, uh, we need constructors for every class, which is actually not required in Java. E. So then they add, mm -hmm. add default constructor annotation on every class, and Lombok generates all the default constructors and whatever. Then they try, you know, to optimize transactions. So, and they say, okay, it's cool. Then we will start transactions, you know, on the uh, database level almost, and the most closest uh, class to the database sometimes starts transactions, sometimes not. Then they oh. disable transactions everywhere else because they guess the transactions are slow, so they do you know, not support it on everything else. And now we have already the first, we have uh, several problems. One problem is that uh, no one knows what is actually consistent and what isn't. And then they found you know, find application scope, the other X inject singleton, and the other X EGB singleton. And because everything is there, they just use you know, sometimes application scope, which does not lock, then EGB singleton, which locks. And then they get you know, funky, uh, funky effects. 
And uh, so after several iterations, sometimes, you know, I get a contract then. Uh, I and I would like uh, or I should help them with uh, microservices. And uh, what, what happens is they build such a monolith, which looks like a high tech, but is over overcomplicated. And I look at that and we say, okay, let's delete Lombok and all the getters and setters. We don't need it in Java E. And so what I do, I simplify the code, and in the end of the day, uh, we could micro introduce microservices or not, but the whole code base then is you now back to the roots. Simple code, what, as you said, the facades, the EJBs or transactional, they are starting the transaction and the and, and the facade level. This is reused, and mm -hmm. out of the box, everything is consistent. So there are no tricks, nothing. Simple code, so back to simplicity. And this is the problem I see, and, and the next danger is, you know, all the reactive programming, asynchronous programming, uh, the uh, the uh, uh, is the next trouble because uh, asynchronous is fine in case the user interface is uh, also asynchronous, but in most cases the interfaces are built in request response way, so that they have to block somewhere. And if you try to block an asynchronous system, you are already in trouble. You cannot actually <laughs> you cannot you cannot resolve the errors. And um, and it means that you're absolutely right. All the error handling is actually not in place. There are no timeouts. No one knows you know how to react to timeouts. The next problem is there are only technical metrics in place. There are never business metrics, what the system is actually doing. So I would say the most obvious things are not implemented. And everything else, which is funky or from conferences, you know, the funky frameworks and whatever they have, new programming languages are there without any added value for the for the system. I think this is the most problem. Mm, yeah, okay. similar experience. People, the, the transaction thingy, uh, people uh, kind of do often do the transaction handling on a, on a kind of too deep level mm -hmm. where they kind of should, if you have a request response or other event, then one event should kind of be a transaction. And then you can overdo it like uh, have been there with the, um, the, the spring, uh, what, what, I'm not sure if it's introduced by spring or by hibernate, the, the, um, transaction per view, where you kind of have an, a servlet filter, which opens a transaction already. Open view in session but or something like this, Open right? view in session, yeah. And I, I'm completely with flat that this is overkill, but it's, it's way too much. Um, but <clears throat> if you do it kind of directly on the DAO, then it's too late because you, you call five DAOs and then you have five transactions. And just if, if some of them blows up, then the other is already committed and you also have inconsistent data. So, um, having the, the right level of transaction, um, transactionality is an important thing to understand. And what I, love especially uh it, it depends on the front-end technology uh but for especially for jsf projects uh i, I love the, the request scoped entity manager pattern um <clears throat> you can also could also do this with now with with e7 and so on with a transactional on kind of the the jsf action mm -hmm. um but uh it you even have lazy loading then in the jsf uh, render response phase uh, for for kind of things like uh, if you do Angular or Vue.js applications where you need to send a DTO, a kind of a JSON DTO back, uh, then you probably are perfectly fine with with AGB, um or uh, a transactional from JavaX transaction. Mm -hmm. But you have to apply it on the, on the 
there where the, the business uh, bracket needs to be mm-hmm. and not on a much lower level. And um, <clears throat> the reason why I started this discussion now and, uh, is if people now move from a biggish monolith or they claim it's a monolith uh, to splitting this up in 100 microservices, then we are almost there where we have been with SOA. You have a customer service and an address service and you have your business logic and it calls, oh, create this customer to the customer service and then say, okay, I have three addresses. Create address number one, create address number two, create address number three. And all those are REST uh, calls, which are actually most of the time it's not REST, it's just JSON plus um, HTTP, which is not the same um, than REST. Um, but you have kind of four remote calls and you don't have a transaction boundary anymore because it, these are actually four transactions. And if your address service bumps up after the second address, then you have inconsistent data. Uh, and this will happen because you, you know that the fallacies of distributed computing from Peter Deutsch, 1986, Sun Microsystems, they have been there. <laughs> yeah. we, we know this since, since 40 years now. Um, but nobody cares about it anymore. Yeah. And they only care about it once they have this in production two years later, because su- such data inconsistency failures, you don't see them immediately because if the microservices have different databases, well, there is not even a constraint between those things. And mm-hmm. you, you kind of have cast, uh, have, have bills pointing to a customer, which doesn't exist anymore or did never exist because Oh, well, the customer transaction uh, went wrong and boomed up, but the bill has been written. Uh, so, I, and you figure this well, after a year or two, if you do some reporting and some database administrator goes, goes completely bonkers and, and uh, cries for two weeks because uh, he can't find anything and everything is broken. And then you start looking at the database and you have to admit this is wrong and things went went really really bad and i've seen this in production quite a few times already with microservices yeah so um per, i'm thinking just uh because i have two topics still um first uh one with the with the modules so uh oh no modules so now you understand how my code mostly looks like mm-hmm. what i see and uh for me my approach is Simplify as much as possible. And simplify means uh, what will happen usually is we get in 99% of all cases a JAXORS resource, which I try to be really restful. Or at least you should recognize if you look at the URI, the, mm-hmm. uh, what what's happens from the business perspective. Yeah. So this is what, what I really like. So don't make me this think. This is a huge, huge failure. A lot of companies or a lot of people do not understand that there is a difference between an imperative HTTP plus JSON call versus a real REST resource. Yeah. So customers, you know, customers get the, get the customers or uh, processes like, you know, cancellations or orders or whatever. So you can you can just model this this way. And uh, then behind that, the JAXORS resource is never unit tested because it has no code, uh, no significant amount mm-hmm. of logic. So cyclomatic complexity, probably one or two. And then behind yeah, just that... Just runs through to a CI service. Yeah. And in my case, it is either CDI, it really depends, or mm. still in most of cases, an EGB, but it's almost the same. 
So it is either stateless or uh, or request scoped transactional. So both uh, is almost the same. Mm-hmm. And behind that, only POJOs are allowed. So there's no more EGBs, nothing. And they are optional. And in some cases, it is good enough that you would just inject the entity manager directly to the facade for CRUD and you are golden. So in, in, in some cases, you end up in my architecture seven, two classes. And in more complicated cases, the facade plus as many POJOs you need and if you have persistence, you can you could inject the entity manager directly to the POJOs. Having said that, if you get complicated queries, what will happen is you get one POJO control which just cares about the queries, but it just occurs. So I never write, you know, DAOs up front. It's just they just happen because um, if you if you think about the responsibilities, in one point of time, they, you get something like, you know, a customer search something, and the customer searcher, customer searcher just cares about the search and this is the basic thing and now um how to encapsulate the the concept and the encapsulation we have is a microservice so if this thing grows and it makes sense to have from the business perspective something like this which is uh which makes sense from business perspective let's say let's say we have a customer service and this is one team which cares about the customer service and the life cycle is uh is uh, team dependent then we create a war. Now the name is microservice. Back then it was just a war, and we ship it to production. And another team communicates with this war via not type safe interfaces. Exactly what you said. This is uh, like JavaScript like approach with with the modules. And but even if in larger projects, I think you end up having at most ten such microservices because it is. Yeah, but it's ah, yeah, it's a naming point. Yeah, well. Um, th- that's also, I've never seen a big business company with just one monolith application. They call mm-hmm. it monolith because it maybe have 2000 classes or so, mm-hmm. but it's actually, there are, there are 10 of such applications talking with each other permanently. Mm-hmm. And if you go remote, then you kind of have the, the transactionality inside but if you go remote, you then you, the, all the guarantees are off, and you have to do apply the same uh, algorithms or, or solution um, like you do with microservices. But if you have bigger services like self-contained systems, that's the term I use most of the times uh, per biggish domain, um, then you only have to care about all those problems and do it yourself uh, if you go remote. But if you stay inside your, your biggish application, then you still have all the transaction guarantees and people can just program for the green line. And if something blows up with an point, well, it gets rolled back. Bad luck, but the data is consistent at least. Um, so it, it's not a case that we are talking about microservice versus dev one monolith for the whole 50,000 employee company. That's never been the case. Uh, each each biggish part in the company has its own application and they are already talking with each other. And they're, well, so this, this has always been the case. I've never seen a, a big company which has just one application. Okay, then um, in my approach is to keep the monolith as simple as lean as possible. And if everyone is happy, so we have just one microlith. And... Yeah, it's it, it's not just the, the question is I don't care how it's it's called S- uh, slicing those things too small, uh, kind of having the medical uh, department and slicing the medical department in 
275 microservices, it's just bonkers. Yeah. Um, it doesn't make any sense. No, absolutely not. And uh, this is, uh, yeah, exactly. And and uh, it it always makes sense if it is obvious. Uh, so I in a startup, so I can mention he 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 would love it. So it is uh, a. Um, what was it? Uh, Tippy camp. So this is like you know, uh, tent as a service, <laughs> and um, and uh, it started with one war, and uh, he was really happy. So this was one person startup, and the problem was the uh, payment, uh, like Airbnb and PayPal and whatever, they changed frequently, and uh, we always had to redeploy his war, and uh, if we identified the problem, we extracted the payment services into another war. And we had war-to-war yeah, -war okay. communication with two independent life cycles. But this was obvious. We didn't care whether the name is microservice or not. It made, made sense. Yeah, sure. mm -hmm. yeah. And this is how I see microservices or whatever, however you call it. So this is, for me, the ultimate module. And I would expect that such a module has own life cycle and own versioning, you know. And therefore, I don't uh, have modules inside my war usually because if this is grows too big, we introduce another, how we call it, self-contained system or whatever you call it. So it's something like the ultimate module, which only communicates with ASCII with the another Java module. This is the, the idea. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I just recently got asked by a colleague, a company colleague, uh, where do I see me in five years? And I said to him, well, I expect that we are all uh, re-engineering microservice projects into something else because people will figure that they kind of overdo it and <laughs> cut those things way too smallish. You should always cut, only cut things into parts if it's needed, or you know it will be needed. <laughs> I, uh, I think it was more than 10 years ago. I got asked by a German magazine, it's like manager magazine or something, uh, what is my opinion if SOA, the SOA, takes off? Yeah, <laughs> there will be uh, many layoffs, and uh, what the people will do afterwards. And my answer was, <laughs> if SOA will take off, no one will be jobless because the system gets so complicated. They will yeah. they will have to double the workforce, and the and the the uh, the writer, the editor of the magazine, they, they didn't want it to publish that, and they say, don't change it. <laughs> you will have to publish this in, in that way. And they published it, but it was a, no, a huge circus because they were really uh, like, no, this was not what what they wanted to hear. Yeah, and, sure. Uh, yeah, and uh, this is the same but right now. True. This is completely yeah. over over exaggerated. Everyone creates mm -hmm. microservice, and I asked them, you know, what is the purpose of the module you've wrote right now? And there's usually an answer. They just wrote because they they think if they the, the more <clears throat> microservices they deploy, the better it gets. Yeah, yeah uh, well, but but there is something like with SOA. Everybody hates SOA now. Back in the day, they yeah. were raving about it. Yeah. But there have been a few kind of uh, patterns which evolved and which are still in use. Like the whole saga pattern is based on compensations. Compensations got basically not, not introduced, but made uh, kind of the publicity aware um, with SOA. And so we have the same with microservices. Yeah, but Things these compens like... compensations are trivial if you think about this. The problem we have always, no? Yeah, but they, but they don't do it. But yeah, they but... don't do it. And it's hard to do it right. And you have to do it right for every single functional call you do. And it's always different. It's, it cannot be automated. And people have to think about it. And they forget about it every second time. Uh, the in, problem... in practice, compensations are almost never 
really, really, really okay, so, except you really have them often blowing up. My criticism to all that <laughs> is no microservice. There's a new term, everyone is confused. Then uh, compensation. So compensation means basically, so if the transaction commits in a database and you roll back a transaction, it usually does not happen in real world. So if you ordered something, you know, and the order is on the way, you cannot just say roll back and the order disappears magically. Yes. So you will need another transaction which sets off, you know, so, so uh, this compensation means you have more and more transactions. We try to compensate whatever happens in the in the past. And the problem is it gets more and more complicated. And, yeah, sure. mm-hmm. yeah. And, and this is why this, this trade-offs is as if you if you write simple code, request, response, synchronous code with uh, and this understandable, you will win. And whatever we talk about right now, there are already solutions to problems. If your system ha- had another problem, like you know they had to distribute the system or you did something strange with it, yeah. or you are Netflix, so that you have no no other chance. So my basic advice is you are not Google, Facebook, or Netflix, um, <laughs> and then forget about them and do whatever you have to do to solve the problems. So by by the way, are you actually aware of the Jeff Bezos note on microservices? No. I'm not quite it was sure in the year 2002, and my idea was to start our conversation with that, but it got uh-huh, too, okay. too, too interesting with your approach to testing <laughs> and modules. So I think, okay, forget about microservice for a while. And the note is, I will just read it, and I put it to the show notes. So Jeff Bezos uh, wrote a note, a mail, to all the employees in 2002. This is how AWS happened. And it said, said all teams will henceforth expose their data and functionality through service interfaces. Well, first, first thing. Team must communicate with each other through these interfaces. There will be no other form of inter-process communication allowed. No direct linking, no direct reads of another team's data store, no shared memory model, no backdoors, whatever. The uh, only communication allowed is via service interface calls over the network. It doesn't matter what technology they use. All services interfaces, without exception, must be designed from ground up to be externalizable. This is to say the team must plan and design to be able to expose the interface to developers in the outside world. No exceptions. And then the last, uh, the last, no, uh, the last sentence in the mail was, anyone who doesn't do this will be fired. Thank you. Have a nice day. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, well, and interesting is 2002 and why Amazon did it, because what Amazon does, it reinvests or reinvested all the money back to development. And with that approach, they implemented uh, business logic uh, double and twice, but it didn't matter if they move faster. So they had endless resources and they could parallelize their work. You know, it was a complete different mindset than my clients have. If I would say we just start, you know, 500 teams and we will do, you know, 100% of the business logic will be duplicates, but we will move faster um, and it will cost, you know, uh, twice as much, but we will be 30% faster. My clients will say to me, you are fired. You know, this is a complete different world. And um, so yeah. microservices have different advantages. So what, I, what I think what happened over time is um, the, the idea back then from Netflix on Amazon, it does not apply at all for businesses. But um, yeah. if we separate, you know, the, if we isolate the processes, we get, we, we do it reasonable. Um, we have uh, we have complete you know different advantages. So where Amazon is not interested in, for instance, right? Yes, we, the, the the standard business uh, has a benefit in modularization, doing proper modularization. Um, Amazon, Netflix style of things, they they barely have transactions. They are are about mostly about throughput. 
and scalability. And um, for each of those, you have different trade-offs. Um, <clears throat> but I, I want to quickly come back to what, what I started earlier. The, the benefits of microservices will be there even in many, many years, even if we don't do microservice type of architecture anymore, because there are so many uh, tricks with the, the broad public learned, like, like circuit breakers, like uh, correlation, a uh, lock correlation, and uh, kind of traceability over different systems. The same applies, of course, in microservices, you need it for almost every call because you're going remote every time. But the same applies if you have kind of self-contained biggish monolith systems which which talk to each other or like a SAP or a, a document archive or whatever. So whenever they kind of leave their transaction safety inside world and go remote to somewhere, then it's really good to also have a circuit breaker to a bulkhead or whatever. So there are a lot of patterns we can learn from um, from the microservice architecture idea and apply them also to to monoliths because it's not a problem of microservices. It's a problem of going distributed. Yeah, absolutely with you. So this is this is why everything repeats, you know. If you learned 20 mm -hmm. years ago Genie once and you knew what problem you had, you could steal st what I really do. I still steal, you know, the Genie ideas in my real-world project, like leasing. You know what leasing was back mm -hmm. then? Uh, resource leasing. Yeah. This was like a, a service that you say, I'm alive, I'm alive. It wasn't. It, was, yeah. uh, it, it disappeared from the, from the network. Uh -huh. yeah. Genius idea, yeah. And it, it, and uh, so I think the challenge is not to forget things, you know. So if you learn once the, the basic host mm. technology, mainframe technology, you are good for microservice and clouds, I would say. <laughs> yeah, the, the problem, as I said, the, the distributed number, the, the fallacies of distributed computing uh, got introduced or written down in 1986, mm -hmm. and they still apply. And <laughs> so we, yeah. To close the There's discussion there <laughs> with a short, uh, 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 with a new topic, what's your opinion opinion about Big Bang Jakarta immigration? Um, I, I brought this up a year ago or so, and I think it's the only reasonable way to do it because it can be automated on the bytecode level. Right. So you can drop in an old war, um, and I, I wrote a prototype of this yet, and I have a student which um, which works on it, <clears throat> and. Uh, Well, cool. You have students which uh, who work for you. Yeah, uh, yeah. They do bachelor thesis or something like that. Hey, cool. Um, and they they are looking in in things which are useful, and I kind of uh, have many many real world problems which are also interesting on this. And uh, one of the things, and and they end up kind of being open source projects at the Apache or so. Um, and. Um, One of the the current things is um, to have a class loader or bytecode retransformer, uh, which kind of, if you load an old WAR file with uh, javax.inject mm -hmm. <clears throat> or javax.faces something, it will kind of dynamically rewrite all those things to jakarta.faces.something. Yeah, cool. On so the bytecode I... level. That's, that's not that complicated. We, we've done this before, but you can automate this. And of course, there are resources. You have to, to think about the service loader. So in, in detail, it's, it's a little bit more tricky, but it's a neat thesis, I, I think, and um, some, some good uh, kind of uh, 
point to get into bytecode level cool. Java. So I didn't. I'm also with you. So I, I think uh, from different uh, perspective, if we have a big bang, big bang uh, Jakarta EE migration of the namespace of the packages, it is extremely good for marketing <laughs> and for for future developers because they see okay, this is the new stuff, and we have to don't do not care about the Java X. And I got uh, also another benefit could be we don't have to migrate everything over. What I will do, I would, for instance, uh, make it could soap. Could be a Java plugin, a Maven plugin. Yes, for instance, soap. I wouldn't. I, yeah. I would deprecate soap. We could talk about deprecation of EJBs if we if we have equivalent. We get equivalent stereotypes on CDI. So something like you know, a request scoped and transactional could be grouped into something like service or whatever into one stereotype. So or uh, so we can we don't have to 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 pull over EJBs and schedules could be standardized. So if we migrate over the functionality to CDI. We could drop EJBs. Mm -hmm. yes. We could drop. We could drop. You know the uh, old uh, XML RPC and whatever is there. So I wouldn't migrate it over. It's also your opinion that, for instance, Jakarta E9 could be a much leaner because uh, because then what the service could do, you could work with your legacy stuff having Java X WS SOAP or whatever, and the new stuff would be Jakarta E. Right? This could this could work that way. Yes, and uh, with with bytecode tricks or class loader tricks, you can even run old chars and uh, import it. Of course, if you compile against it, then you have to kind of might be tricky in the detail, but it should actually work to do it on the fly, even. Okay, cool. Or with a Maven plugin. And what's your opinion about the micro profile in Jakarta? E? So, from my perspective, they should be kept separate so because the you know the iteration of jakarta e is slower this is like major boring technology and this is micro profile is like uh driven by cloud native foundation and the cool stuff which we couldn't cannot control so they iterate faster they have four releases a year so i think it's a good idea to keep them separate um what's your opinion on that uh the, the spirit of the teams is completely different uh even if there are some sometimes the same people involved but the microprofile spirit is much more open much more open source ready where the um and much faster moving and uh where the the jakarta spirit is still kind of the, the eclipse foundation has to free itself from this old thingy from this old thinking and this this is kind of gets apparent with this uh, CLA change, which is from a legal aspect completely useless. It just uh, kind of stopped half of the contributors to contribute because it was kind of additional legal barrier, and it's so useless. Uh, okay. Uh, um, so I, I think Eclipse makes its living right now a little bit harder than it needs to. Mm -hmm. But I'm I'm pretty confident, and at, that at the end at the end of the day, it will get sorted out, and we will kind of start moving fast again. So, so it means you are also for keep them separate, Microprofile and Jakarta. Yes. Oh, very good. So this is in the rare cases where we agree on something. This is uh, actually amazing. So we never agree. It's not that rare cases, but <laughs> we are often approaching the same goal from different angles. That's yeah, but the complete point. opposite <laughs> angles. This is the interesting because uh, sometimes I, uh, I don't know, I, I listen to, to something from you. And it's like, what you are talking, it, it's just crazy. <laughs> and, and, and then, and then I, I thought about this is actually, I could end up having the same thing from complete different direction. 
Yes, I, I remember we had a talk once at the conference where I, after you gave your talk, I said, hey, come on, man, this, this sample, this doesn't work in production be, or in, in practice because that and that and that. And your answer was basically, so yeah, you're right. And I know this, but if I would have explained all those details, then people would completely lose me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, it's you, you go to, to companies and kind of, uh, do the spike and you you bring them to the right direction yeah uh, and and uh this is this is really good but you don't often have the time to to start with all the details i guess and i'm coming yeah. from the completely different angle i yep. i start with two pro- with two all projects. the details and then i after an hour of talking and kind of losing 80 percent of the people probably i kind of explain them why i uh, I, I explained this to them. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I have two, two, two kind of projects. One kind is uh, uh, the spikes, and the other one is what you are doing are firefighting projects, and then it's mm-hmm. just about the details. But I don't have nothing yeah. in between, so I don't like I don't never. I think for ten years I never spent you know more than uh, a month in a project. So it's just like I don't mm-hmm. stick with a project for a long time. Either I see the disaster, I try to fix it, or they ask me you know how an ideal architecture would look like and we work together and uh, until and then when everyone is happy then i leave the project usually and then they do whatever they like to do and then they keep you know inviting me once a month or whatever and then i try to help them or ask questions uh, answer questions or something like this so this is what yeah, usually happens good. with me mm-hmm. I have a definition of my personal definition of done because I, I got this asked a few times of, uh, because people think so, oh, you're cool. You did the architecture. You, you kind of explained us how we do it. You're, we're fine. Uh, project finished. I said, no, a project is finished after it runs for in production for three months and the users are happy. It's not about you. The customers are happy that the people who pay me, I, completely don't care about the people who have to use those programs. They need to be happy. And you really see this only in production. You could have such a good feeling and then people come to you and the clerk uh, people and say, oh gosh, this is completely contrary to what we do in practice and what we need. And well, then you're not finished. Of course. So, um, we covered a little bit microservices, but the discussion was more interesting than I actually <laughs> assumed because we covered the modules, which, uh, yeah. So we yeah. should do another follow-up in half a year or something and talk really about <laughs> microservices or whatever, or serverless or whatever We, if, if you're interested in it. And uh, where people can find you? Do you can give some links to your internet resources? Of course, on Twitter or at Apache, Struberg at Apache.org or, yeah. Perfect. So or Struberg at Twitter and so on. And I don't think we will be talking that much on microservices in two years from now. Um, and for me, microservices is just a name for another flavor of distributed architecture. The cool story is um, I also did some talks. I do a lot of projects with JavaScript, plain JavaScript. And in one talk, I, I hacked something and someone said, what you are proposing here, it's called micro, micro frontends. Very cool. And uh, the next talk, Java user talk, I will propose, I will rename the talk to micro frontends. So now I learned a new term without. <laughs> now, now I have an interesting question. How yeah. do you do frontends for microservices? Because that's something I really struggle. We, we have a lot of customers with, which do Angular or Vardin and a few of them are still doing JSF. And what I figured is 
the JSF is such a much better fit for microservice or kind of modulitic backends where you have multiple application server, but still you need to have kind of appear to be one UI. Yeah. Because if you kind I of I have to stop you once. One, one, one question. <laughs> How much time do time do you have now? <laughs> I have enough time today. Okay. So, so. we stop this episode <laughs> and we do right now in one second another one about this topic. Agreed? <laughs> okay. But I can't add too much. So we say just bye. For the answer. <laughs> okay. Have a nice afternoon. Thanks you for the interview. Ciao.